Welcome, one and all, to RFK All The Way. This is a special edition of the podcast. We are playing a recording of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Heal the Divide speech from San Diego on May 29th, 2023, Memorial Day, with introductory remarks by Dr. Stanton Holm and Del Bigtree from The High Wire. Some of you haven't heard this material yet, and if you haven't, it's going to be a treat. Here we go. In this county, in our city, all the way down to our families, but I know you know that we all feel it in our hearts. And that divide has to be reconciled, that divide has to be healed. And I believe that's why we are here. And I believe we do that first by showing up. I want to commend you all for being here. I want, to, I want you to all, I want you to thank yourselves for being here. And I want you to turn to the person on your right or your left, and you can either give a handshake or you can give a hug. And I want you to do that right now. Good evening, everyone. My name is Dr. Stanton Hom, and for 15 years, I've been in service of this county as clinic director of the Future Generations Clinic of Chiropractic. We amplified that message three years ago as host of the Future Generations podcast, but many of you are here because over the last three years, we also said en masse, we're going to meet in person, we're going to celebrate life, we're going to celebrate this beautiful county that we're in. And we actually were to be deeply committed and devoted to the heart of freedom. But most importantly, we're here to celebrate the hope and possibility that rests in what it takes to actually step into the fray and to step on the arena and heal this divide in a way that I believe absolutely necessary for the future of the world. I have the pleasure of introducing our first speaker. Many of you didn't know we had two speakers tonight, but the first speaker I have been inspired by for the last eight years. He's somebody who has, he's an Emmy award-winning producer. He has brought to the table this level of media truth that I have never seen in the history of my life in a way, I would love for you guys to welcome, with a big round of applause, Mr. Del Bigtree. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Welcome San Diego to this historic moment. Uh, for those of you that don't know who I am, I worked in media. I worked for the doctor television show for CBS, celebrating the best that medicine and science has to offer. I won an Emmy Award doing that work. We were one of the first shows ever to bring science and medicine as entertainment to the world. It was a hit. Only one problem, you had to sort of toe a line. Certain stories you could do and those you couldn't. So when I stumbled upon a story of a whistleblower inside the CDC, that was saying they were committing scientific fraud in the vaccine safety studies, I had a choice. 
Do I avoid that story because we are sponsored by Merck and we are also fans of the CDC, the doctors, and we don't want to hurt those relationships because God forbid the truth get out? Or do I go out and tell the truth? So I went and got involved and made a documentary called Vaxxed, which changed my life forever. But I want to talk about that because people always say, you know, Del, you know, thank you for your sacrifice. Um, and I think it's a misunderstanding of, of what life is really about. What is sacrifice? I had the opportunity to tell a story that no other journalist had the guts to tell, so I was all alone. I got to celebrate it myself, take it around the world and watch it shift the consciousness of the world around me. And then as I wanted to get deeper and deeper into that story, I started a nonprofit. And that nonprofit has done amazing work to allow me to create my own television show, The High Wire, which is on the internet, thehighwire.com. And now I have more people watch my episode than they ever watched CBS or any show I ever worked for on networks. And all that's thanks to you. Because there was attempts at censorship, they shut down my YouTube channel, they shut down my Facebook channel, because they thought that they could stop the truth from being told. But instead, as it turns out, human beings actually know how to type in www.thehighwire.com. And we went from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands, and then this beautiful thing called COVID came along. And suddenly we were reaching five to seven million people every week. Because most of you realized that television is lying to us. We were the ones that told you on the high wire that this vaccine would never stop transmission. It was called misinformation. We were censored for saying it and attacked by newspapers. And only now, recently, suddenly, every organization, every news organization has to admit, geez, we got it wrong. In fact, in front of the EU, when one of the executives for Pfizer, Janine Smalley, was asked, you know, did you test this vaccine to see if it would stop transmission before you gave it to the public? And she said, no, we were moving at the speed of science. And so the world found out that we were all part of a giant lie that every single network in the world covered carried, propagated, and it was wrong. A product that could not protect anyone else around you. In fact, for those reasons, puts everybody else at risk. Because you think you're protected and you're not. Yeah. At the heart of this is truth. At the heart of this is why are we not allowed to ask questions in the United States of America? Why are we allowing censorship? Why are there doctors having their LinkedIn channels shut down? Why are they being censored everywhere they go? Top doctors, Dr. Peter McCullough, the most published heart doctor in the world, censored. Dr. Robert Malone, one of the inventors of the mRNA vaccine, censored. Meanwhile, we're told the consensus supports this product that isn't properly being tested and you won't know about that for years. We see attacks by the NIH, by Tony Fauci and Francis Collins saying, Anyone that speaks about against lockdowns or masking or the fact that it doesn't work, they must be shut down immediately. That's not science. Science demands challenge. The scientific method means that anyone that wants to attack this principle that can should. We celebrate that attack. We celebrate that challenge. And our science only stands up when we can prove we're still right against all of those challenges. 
The same principle that holds truth for science and the scientific method is the same principle that is supposed to be the foundation of journalism. Our founding fathers called it the fourth estate, the fourth branch of government for a reason. Our founding fathers said if you ever lose a free media that is not afraid to challenge the government that is in place, that is not afraid to challenge the industry, if they end up working for your government or working for the industries, then America will be lost. And that is where we're at now. A media system that pushes an agenda upon the world that they cannot back up with any facts, but it's what the government is telling them to say, it's what their sponsors at Pharma are telling them to say, and so any question they have, anything that doesn't make sense, they are not allowed to ask it. In the end, the American people, our country, are the victims of propaganda, censorship, deceit, and lies. Yeah. And we're seeing it all around us. We reached a point where many of us have lost hope. I've been saying for the last several years, I'm politically marooned. I grew up a loudmouth, progressive liberal, loved getting in any you know, debate that I could. But then I watched as the party that I believed in here in California passing laws, forcing children to be injected with vaccines in order to go to school. Why? Why isn't that a choice? What happened to my body, my choice? I thought that was a principle of the Democrat Party. I remember marching with my parents against wars. And now every conversation I have, apparently, we love war. We want to fight in wars. That's the Democrat Party now, is a war party. And none of it makes any sense. Meanwhile, I have Republican friends that are against war. Doesn't make sense. They want to bring our troops home, invest in infrastructure. I'm like, that used to be our line. Woo! I think we'd all lost hope. We see a country going down the tubes. Our constitution under attack almost totally decimated by the COVID pandemic. Our rights disappear. Suddenly, if we didn't wear a mask, if we didn't inject ourselves with a totally experimental product, our jobs were taken away from us. The government controls my job, decides whether I get to work or not. That does not sound like the United States government. Decides whether I get to travel or not. It doesn't sound like the United States government. Decides what I'm allowed to say on my social media platforms when I'm just talking to my friends and those that agree with me, that's not allowed? That does not sound like the United States of America. None of it does. And what it definitely does not sound like is the Constitution of the United States of America. I have had this incredible opportunity in this sacrifice that I've made in my career. It's not one, I'm having the best time of my life. But I've had this incredible opportunity to gain one of my best friends in the world in Robert Kennedy Jr. <laughs> who has stood with me when we brought lawsuits against the National Institutes of Health and won. When we brought lawsuits against Health and Human Services and won. I always say to all the news media that says we're spreading misinformation, I was like, really? You ought to try and win lawsuits against the government of the United States using misinformation. There's a reason we're winning. There's a reason more and more people are waking up that proper questions need to be asked. 
like the one that was asked at the National Institutes of Health when Robert Kennedy Jr. invited me, several other lawyers and scientists to go in and talk to Francis Collins and Tony Fauci about the vaccine program. And when Robert Kennedy asked, why is it that we can't find a single double-blind study, a placebo-based study of any of the childhood vaccines we give our kids? Are they just not being done or are they just in such early phase trials we're not seeing them? I'll never forget some guy at the end of the table, there's like 10 people across, it was Tony Fauci was right across from me and right across from uh, Robert was uh, Francis Collins and somebody at the end of the table goes, of course we do double blind placebo studies, they're just in early phase trials and you don't see them. And Robert in his calm demeanor says, great, that's why we're here at the National Institutes of Health. America has asked us to get the evidence for the safety of this product. You have the archives here, we'll wait. Go ahead and bring us those trials. <laughs> pregnant pause, super long pregnant pause, one of the longest I've ever experienced. And then Tony Fauci finally broke the silence with, we don't do placebo trials because it would be unethical. <laughs> and there it was. It's unethical to do a proper safety trial. Tony Fauci admitted it. And now we now know because of the work of Robert Kennedy Jr. and others that no childhood vaccine ever went through a double-blind placebo trial before given to America's children. That is a crime. That is a crime. And it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think of the vaccine program. What we're talking about is proper science being done. It doesn't mean necessarily that the vaccines aren't safe. What it means is you cannot say that they're safe because you never did a proper safety trial. In the United States of America, for God's sakes, we should be able to say we know it's safe because the science was done. And if you can't say that, you certainly can't attack anybody that points out the obvious. The science wasn't done. So when I look at the idea of Robert Kennedy Jr. running for president of the United States of America, we all know our government's corrupt. I don't think there's anyone in this room, whether you're Republican, Democrat, I'll bet you if I ask, it's probably half and half of you here today. That's how dynamic this leader is. When we talk about uniting this country, no one can actually do that if they can't get anyone to you know, reach across an aisle. But polls across America are showing that Republicans have said, I'll consider Robert Kennedy Jr. I'll think about it. I'll think about that legacy that I grew up with remembering in the Kennedy family. I'll think about John F. Kennedy that stood against the globalist system, central reserve banking systems, and CIA-driven wars. And for standing up against that globalist system, he was taken from all of us. And then his brother, his little brother, decides, you know what? The Democrat Party is being lost. We're losing ourselves and everything we care about, the people and humanity. And if I'm asked, will I vote as a Democrat, I would have to say no. And so Robert Kennedy said under those circumstances then, there's only one thing I can do. 
I need to be able to tell the truth. And the truth is, I'm going to run for president of the United States. Yeah. For all the same reasons, to stand against globalist systems, the corporate takeover of America, remembering that the president is simply employed by the people of America. And by carrying that principle, we lost him too. And now we have to sit here in this moment and ask ourselves, what has happened to this nation? After we lost those two brothers, in many ways we've been run by globalists ever since, and corporate warmongers ever since. And now most of America feels completely disenfranchised. They believe the system is rigged against them, many not believing that their vote even counts. And we ask ourselves, what do we do? Do we give up? We know what's around the corner. We just watched our rights disappear for three years as we were locked in our homes, our jobs were taken away, our economy is destroyed. Trillions of dollars in debt because of it. Now let's just raise the debt ceiling again and keep spending money we do not have. To fight wars that make no sense and drive Russia and China together. How do we come out of this? Truth. Truth. Leadership. And when we think about what a leader is, it's someone that no matter how much anger and lies are thrown upon them, no matter how much the media attacks them or the headlines that try to demean them, they do not move from their journey and their truth. There's no one, there's no one that I know here standing on this stage or in this audience that has stood in front of the amount of ridicule and condemnation as Robert Kennedy Jr., yet he still has never left us. And he's never left his truth. I remember once I was sitting with him and I said, Bobby, why are you doing this? I mean, you're a Kennedy. You could totally let go of this vaccine issue. You have one of the most immaculate environmental issues of, you know, backgrounds the world's ever seen. You have sued and won against the EPA, the FDA, CDC. Everything you've done would be celebrated by every Democrat in this country, but you keep screwing yourself by staying in this lane with me and others on vaccine injury. And he said, because it's simply the truth. And children are being destroyed. And I was raised my family where there's a group, no matter how small, how much a minority they are, we're supposed to stand for them. And I will not walk away from them. And for everyone out there, and I know there's press, and they all want to make this about some anti-vaccine story, here's the truth. Here's the truth. There is no such thing as a pharmaceutical product that doesn't injure somebody. Fact. If you drove down the road and saw a billboard that said, drugs are safe and effective. Can you imagine how stupid that would look to you? I mean, well, your brain would immediately go, well, which drugs? Because I know that like several were taken off the market last year, lost billions of dollars for lying about safety. I see all of these side effects listed on these commercials that go on and on and on from anal leakage to, you know, suicidal thoughts. So clearly they're not safe and effective for everybody. How is it that we've allowed this moronic statement to be made by vaccines? 
It's the same thing. There are people being injured every day. It may be a very small group of people, but why are we attacking the individuals that are fighting for that minority? That's all that's happened here. We have a man that fought for our environment, that tried to get mercury out of fish so that I would be able to go fishing with my son in a river and actually eat it when it's all over. That's made sure our waterways are clear, that our food is clear, that our air is clean. Why is it when a product that's being injected in every child is destroying some of them that we are not allowed to stand for that sum, for that few, that no studies are allowed to be done to figure out how big is that group? How far does it extend? We need a leader that is not afraid to ask questions, that is not afraid of being censored, is not afraid of being called names. And when they get into the office and decide to try and actually clear the swamp, don't take the keys of the United States of America and hand them to Tony Fauci. I'm sorry. Fail. Big time fail. And so many of you are coming up to me now and saying, Dell, I don't know, Robert Kennedy, I've been a Republican my whole life. Okay, so let's be zealots then. Let's treat politics like a religion. We're gonna stick with a party even when it fails us. We're gonna stick with being Democrats even when it fails us. We're gonna stick with being Republicans when it fails us. Can you imagine a country where we actually vote for an individual outside of whatever party they represent? We listen to their words. We watch their interviews. We hear what they say to us. And based on that character, on that background, we make a decision for ourselves. Not a party, but for an entire country. A country that needs to be united now, or truly, we will fall. One of the biggest problems we can't talk about in many ways is that we have a movement that already exists in health freedom and medical freedom in this country. And I'm speaking to all of you here that represent that group. But this is a movement built in nonprofits. It's really a problem at the moment, so I need your help. I can't even mention that Robert Kennedy Jr. is running for president on the high wire, which goes out to five to seven million people because it's an educational program for my nonprofit. CHD that had worked with Robert Kennedy Jr. forever cannot talk about Robert Kennedy Jr. because they're a nonprofit. And we're all going to stick inside the rules and the laws as they are written out. But how are we going to get to each other? If you are sitting and waiting, why is the high wire not telling me about Robert Kennedy Jr.? I just told you why. What we need now is an army. What we need now is a movement. What we need now is to recognize that we are all alive right in this moment for a reason. Our children are counting on us to fight for them, to fight for their future, to stop some crypto-centralized currency that will imprison us, to stop World Economic Forum dictates that make no sense. It will take away all of our rights to move freely, travel freely, speak freely. We need to stand up now as a movement. And we need your help. 
Though we may evolve, met each other through nonprofits and work that's out there and stood with each other, right now we've got to drop all of that. There's no easy email chain. There's phone numbers. We all know who each other are. And what I want you to do when you leave here today is if you have not gone to Kennedy24.com, I want you to go there and I want you to sign up to the newsletter so that we can start sharing with you all that we're working on. We have no networks behind us. Robert Kennedy Jr. will not be sponsored by CNN, MSNBC, Fox, CBS, ABC, I guarantee you. That is not how this is going to work. They will try to stop him on the internet everywhere they can. There will be no corporations, there'll be no pharmaceutical companies, Exxon. By the way, we're running a guy that has sued all of the major corporations for poisoning us throughout our lives. So that means there's no billions of dollars lined up to just place this guy into the presidency. It will literally only happen on the backs of the people. And I thought about this, been thinking about it a lot recently. I've been saying for some time, there's no single one individual that can change this world. We put way too much power in the president and they always let us down. But then when Robert Kennedy called me and said, I want you to help, I really thought about it. I thought about all the work that I've done and got a great nonprofit, it's going really well and we're winning tons of lawsuits and setting the record straight. But I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't think we'll win this without a miracle. I've been saying this for some time. There's been miracles all along my journey, but I believe we are probably within four or five years of the total destruction of freedom as we know it in the United States of America. If we get a centralized digital currency, it's over. If AI takes over our lives and the cameras everywhere we go, it's over. If our dollars are marked, it's over. If the pharmaceutical industry gets away with using our government to forcibly inject us with products we don't control, it's over. And so under those circumstances, it's really easy to make a decision. It's really easy for me to know what I'm supposed to do. Because waiting and hiding will only end in the demise of my nation, of my life, and the future I dream about for my kids. And so in this moment, we've been given a blessing. A guy actually that a couple years ago, I, I said to Robert, I said, I think you should run for president of the United States. And don't say anything, I know you've probably thought about this your whole life, but it would be really great if we had someone with your integrity and your courage to run for president. And he said, let me stop you there, Adele. He said, to be clear, I have never thought about running for president in my entire life. And that's what we have right now. You have a soul, a guy that only fought for people, fought for this environment, lived his life in integrity, for the things that he cared about, was passionate and unwavering, realizing the same thing all of us are realizing right now. If not now, then when? If not us, then who? So whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, let me just say this to all of my Republican friends. If you think there's a Republican out there that will 
change the regulatory agencies and get rid of regulatory caps or even though they're being funded by large corporations, that's okay. Go for it. But what I'm saying is, why don't we all make sure that we have a ticket where both sides of the ticket are fighting for the Constitution of the United States of America? Right now, Robert Kennedy's hurdle is not the general election. If you look at that, I think he takes it hands down. More crossover votes than anyone will have ever seen in the United States of America. But he has a DNC standing against him saying, we will not have debates. We will not have democracy. We're going to dictate upon you who you will get to elect and who you will vote for. We're going to decide your fate for you. Once again, not the United States of America. So please, help us. You are the network. You are the television station that will not be on our side. You are the corporate investment that will never be on our side. When I thought to myself, there'll never be one person that can change the world, I realized that's true. But when Robert Kennedy Jr. steps into office, he will only do it on the backs of a giant mob of angry and beautiful people that see something fantastic in the future. It will only happen because the people are there. We're talking about a man that will represent the people, not the corporate interests. Go sign up to Kennedy 24. Get 10 of your friends to sign up and say, hey, at least hear the guy out. There's 20 interviews there he's already done and 200 in the pipeline. Go and listen to what he has to say. Listen to him. Get involved. These are his Republicans. Get and make sure that both sides of this ticket are celebrating the Constitution of the United States of America. It's on us. We can be jaded, we can be pessimistic, and if we live in that space, the world will become everything we're all afraid is becoming. Or we can realize that we have been blessed to be alive in this moment right now not to complain about these horrid times that are trying to take away our rights but to remember that every page of our history book is written by about moments just like this there's not a single page in our history book that said we outnumbered them 10 to 1 and the war was over in five minutes history books are not written about easy wins they're written about the insurmountable odds that made no sense when people had to reach down in the middle of the worst situations, freezing to death, cholera, crossing rivers, standing for something, outnumbered, and yet truth prevailed. Winning happened, and we exist because of those brave individuals. Are we those individuals? Are we those people that would step up and sign the Constitution of the United States of America and the Declaration of Independence and say to the British rulers, I am putting my name here. You know where I live. I will stand until you take me down. But I will never live on my knees. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to find ourselves again, to reach into our DNA of every great leader that stood before us. Stand up now, rise up now, for the next president of the United States of America, Robert Kennedy, Jr.
Thank you, Dell, and thank you all so much for being here. I told Dell that he gave my speech. Um, <laughs> I, before my father entered the election in 1968, there was a friend of his called Al Lowenstein, who was, ended up being a congressman from uh, California and was later himself assassinated. But he started the anti-Vietnam War movement, and he called it the Dump Johnson Movement. And he asked my father, he implored him, he begged him to run for president. My father said no. Uh, he didn't want to run against the president of his own party. He thought it would be career suicide for him. And he didn't think there was any chance that he could win. And Lowenstein ultimately gave up on my dad, and he went and he got Eugene McCarthy to run. And then when my dad entered the race, he went to Al and he asked, Al, will you help run my campaign? And Al said, I can't, because I'm already committed to McCarthy. My father wrote him a note with his favorite quote from Emerson, which said, when a single man plants himself upon his own ideal and thereby the whole wide world will come around to him. And I think of that quote when I think of my friend, Al Bigtree, because when he took on this battle, he took it on, there was almost no movement at all. And he took it on because he saw a piece of truth and he couldn't say still and he stepped away from this incredible job, the ideal job in television as producer of one of the most popular shows on television, The Doctors. And he, he was stepped off an abyss. He had no idea what he was gonna do with his life but he knew he was gonna fight on this issue. And then he finally ended up building himself his own little empire, and I came to him and said, will you walk away from it again? And he did it. So I'm very, very grateful to Dell. And since he talked about vaccines, I'm gonna talk about war. And I, Today is an appropriate day to talk about it because, of course, it's Memorial Day. I had the pleasure of spending the morning at a Veterans of Foreign War ceremonies on, Car on Coronado and met a lot of Gold Star families. My family is a Gold Star family and met a lot of other real heroes for our country. And I was reminded, and I'm going to say probably the most important thing that I'm going to say in this entire talk that I'm gonna give you today, I'm gonna to say the most important thing, which was something that my uncle John Kennedy said. He said the best way, the most important way for us to honor the men and women who gave their lives for our country is to protect the rights that they died to give us. And you all know and in the last three years, those rights have come under an unprecedented attack. Something that I never imagined in my life that I would see. You know, I knew that ultimately democracies decline and they devolve and that, you know, I read Orwell when I was a boy and Robert Heinlein and Aldous Huxley and read all the science fiction dystopian novels about how totalitarianism would rise in our country and would chew up the Bill of Rights but I never believed I would see it in my lifetime. And yet, three years ago, we saw censored government, the government of the United States 
participating for the first time in our history in active censorship of not only people like me who are taking strong political stands, but mothers who are reporting their children injured, doctors, scientists, people, people who, are, who they knew were telling the truth. And they censored them because it departed from the official orthodoxies. And Hamilton, Madison, and Adams said that they put the freedom of speech in the First Amendment because all the other amendments depended on it. All of the other rights that we have, if a government has the capacity, if it has the power to silence its opponents, it has license for any atrocity. And the next thing, as soon as they figured out that we were gonna put up with them censoring our speech, they went after the second leg of the First Amendment, which is freedom of religion. They closed every church in this country for a year without scientific citation, without any due process, no public hearings, no notice and comment rulemaking, all of the due process rights that we have in the government that I've been suing big companies and government agencies for 40 years for not, going, not doing the environmental impact statement, not having a public hearing, not allowing the public to comment and responding to it, not having a hearing where we can cross-examine their witnesses, where they have to come and say, here are the scientific citations that we're relying on. Here are the alternatives we considered. Here are the worst case scenarios. Here's who's gonna get hurt, here's the cost-benefit analysis. They have to do that under the law. And yet none of that was done. It was just one 50-year bureaucrat who had never been elected, who said close all the churches. One week he said masks don't work, a few weeks later, he said, put them on, and a week after that, put two on. And without ever telling us, without ever giving us a single scientific citation, they closed the churches, they kept the liquor stores and casinos open, which I'm fine with, but they, uh, it doesn't make any sense. And then they, then they went after the third leg, which is freedom of assembly. They said we had to socially distance from each other. We couldn't assemble, because we had to stay at least six feet apart, and we had to stay in our home. And where I lived, and they were going down to the, the beach, to Zuma Beach, and they were giving surfers $1,000 tickets and pulling them off the ocean and sending them home to get COVID. It doesn't, it doesn't spread on the ocean. You want, that's where you want the vitamin D and the sunlight, they didn't want that. They wanted you at home where you could get COVID as quickly as possible. Oh, they were, and then they went, to the, they went to Compton and they closed down all the basketball courts. They padlocked them and if they couldn't padlock them, if there wasn't a chain link fence, they took down the, the basketball hoops. They went to Venice Beach and they put sand on the skateboard parks. They wanted us at home. And they knew at that point it only spreads in the home. Everything they did was the inverse of medicine. But more importantly, it violated our rights. They next went after our property rights. Fifth Amendment. They closed down 3.3 million businesses with no due process, no just compensation. They ordered them shut, and they, meanwhile, they were collaborating with the big tech companies to keep 
people from complaining about the lockdowns, to keep anybody from criticizing the lockdowns. So they, you know, I'm, I have a lawsuit right now against Elizabeth Warren for collaborating with Amazon. To censor my book. Censor one a book that I wrote with Joe Mercola. Yes. And it was a doctor. Oh, and they didn't want people to hear what was in that book. So, and it was against, it was again, the book was, was critical of the lockdowns. So you have Jeffrey Bezos, who's making billions of dollars from the lockdown, who's actively collaborating with the government's Hello Ducks. Who's <laughs> <laughs> <was> actively, who's <laughs> actively collaborating with the government to do a lockdown that is closing down all of his competitors and teaching us all to order stuff from Amazon, training the entire American public to no longer go to your local retail outlet. You go to your retail outlet, you know, where I've lived for many years in Mount Kisco, New York. I go into those local stores and there are certificates there from the Boy Scouts because that local guy is supporting them. They're, he's buying Little League jerseys. He is hiring our children for the summer. And, and they allowed, with the government and Bezos, collaborated with each other to shut down all those little businesses that are the heart and souls of our community. They made a billionaire a day during the lockdowns. It was the biggest shift in wealth in human history. They shifted four trillion dollars in wealth from the American middle class to this new generation, this new aristocracy we have of billionaires. Many of them, you know, running these big Silicon Valley internet companies that were actively participating in censoring criticism of the lockdowns that were making them even richer. There was, it was a billionaire a day created 500 new billionaires, but the billionaires who had a billion dollars walking into the lockdowns, according to the Oxfam study that just came out, increased their wealth by 30%. So Gates and Zuckerberg and Bezos and Sergey Brin and all of these other guys were making billions and billions of dollars and then making sure that we couldn't criticize the policies that were robbing us and making them rich. And then they, they went after the Fourth Amendment, of course, the, uh, the, the prohibitions against warrantless searches and seizures. We had all these intrusive government, you know, a track and trail and surveillance, track and trace surveillance. You couldn't leave your home without giving your medical records to somebody, your private, you know, information. You couldn't go into a government building or even to a bar or bowling alley without reveal, without showing your private medical records. This is what they were doing to us. They, uh, they shut down jury trials to the Seventh Amendment. They, they said that if you are, if you're a big corporation and you are providing a countermeasure, whether it's a hospital that's, you know, administering injections or giving remdesivir a deadly formulation to patients or vaccines, nobody can sue you, no matter how negligent you are, no matter how reckless your conduct, no matter how toxic the ingredients are shoddily tested, you cannot be sued no matter how grievous your injury. 
you can't sue the person, the company that does that to you. And, and, and so, and by the way, here's what the Seventh Amendment says. It says, no American shall be denied the right of a trial before a jury of his peers in cases or controversies exceeding $25. That's all it says. That's the entire amendment. There is no pandemic exception. Yeah. They don't say, they don't say except in the case of pandemics or anything, or war or terrorist attacks. They just say, no, there is no exception. And by the way, the framers knew all about epidemics. There were two epidemics during the revolution, one that decimated the armies of Virginia malaria epidemic, and another one that, uh, that froze the army of New England in place at a time when we had just conquered Montreal. So Benedict Arnold's army had gone into Montreal, we had taken the city, but they had to withdraw because of the smallpox that had decimated their, their force. Otherwise, Canada today would be part of the United States. And the framers of the Constitution knew that. They knew that we had lost all of Canada because of smallpox. And between the end of the revolution and the, and the ratification of the Bill of Rights, there were dozens of epidemics in every American city. Cholera, smallpox, yellow fever that killed tens of thousands of people. So they knew, in fact, many of the people who signed, who, who wrote the Bill of Rights, who signed the, previously the Declaration, ultimately helped ratify, voted to ratify the Constitution, had family members that had died in those epidemics. And, and yet, they did not put an epidemic exception in the Constitution. They didn't put any exception. They wrote that document for hard times. They didn't write it for easy times. And during the Civil War, the Confederate government sent agents provocateur to all the northern cities in order to incite draft riots. And they were destroying morale in the American cities. And Lincoln began arresting these men as they came into the cities and suspending the right of habeas corpus. And the Roger Taney, Supreme Court Chief Justice said, you can't do it. It doesn't matter that the country is this far from collapsing. It doesn't matter that 659,000 people have been killed on both sides. It's the equivalent of 7.2 million today, much, much worse than the COVID epidemic. And yet, you cannot do it. The Constitution is more important than anything else in the country. There is no excuse. Now, here we are today, and most Americans do not want to talk about the Constitution and the lockdowns anymore. They're tired of it. And the, the, the idea is that the Constitution has, that the, that the lockdowns are over, we've moved on to other issues, and there are a lot of important issues that we ought to be talking about. But here's the thing. They have suspended the lockdowns. They suspended the masking, the social distancing. But they have not given up the power to impose those in the future. And we have now created in this country this very, very troubling precedent where if there's a pandemic or some other emergency, 
you can now lock down the population, you can close all the businesses, you can tell people to social distance, you can censor free speech. And, and they have not given up. And, I'll, and I will tell you something, that every power that a government takes from the people, it will never give up voluntarily without a demand. And the second rule is that any power that they take they will ultimately abuse to the ultimate extent possible. And that is just a rule of political science. And so we now have this precedent where anytime there's a new disease, somebody can declare a pandemic. Somebody who may not have our best interests at heart. Somebody whose own power may be amplified by declaring a pandemic. Somebody who has relationships with large corporations who can influence them and will also benefit the military industrial complex, the pharmaceutical industry. And by the way, the same people who have that power are the people who are operating biolabs now all over the world in, in Ukraine and everywhere else and Galveston, Texas, and University of North Carolina, Boston University. And they're creating a whole pipeline of pandemic bugs that could escape any day, deliberately or not, and create a new emergency that can justify the imposition of these powers because now we have established that those powers are legitimate somehow. The, the Constitution is a document that is a fair weather document. It's not a document for hard times. It's a document for fair weather. And we have got to get a president into Washington who will fix that. Yeah. Who will make it That will never, ever, it doesn't matter if there's a terror attack, it doesn't matter if there's a war, it doesn't matter if there's a pandemic. We will never, ever again suspend the Constitution of the United States. that gives them the right to, you know, suspend this Constitution are wars. And our, our founding fathers were very, very clear that, that they did not want us to have a standing army in this country because they believed ultimately it would envelop our democracy. And they, they definitely did not want us to go abroad to fight wars because they said, if it is not in America's national interest, if our national survival is not at stake, we, this is what John Quincy Adams said, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We, we send our best regards, we, uh, but, and we support democracy, but we do not go abroad to fight wars uh, unless our national security is at stake. And the reason they said that is because they understood that you cannot have an imperial nation abroad and have a democracy at home. That we, and this is what White Eisenhower warned, that, that if we erect a national, if we erect a, a, a military that is in constant wars, the, the emergence of the military-industrial complex, 
we will lose our constitutional rights. We will have a national security state abroad. I mean, at home. And, uh, and so on 2001, we have the terror attacks in this country. And why are the, why are the, is the, uh, the World Trade Center attack? The World Trade Center is attacked, according to Osama bin Laden, because we have stationed troops near Mecca in Saudi Arabia. That's why he said that he needed to bring down the World Trade Center. The question is that we need to ask ourselves, if we meddle abroad, is it making us safer here at home? No! Has all of these wars made America safer? No! Was it safer when we were kids, before all of these wars started occurring? Yes! It was a lot safer. I went on an airplane, I never walked through an x-ray machine to get on an airplane. You could walk right on it. All of this erection, this national security state, and all this surveillance has been attached to the danger that we, the, the escalated danger that Americans are in because of our, our, because of these constant wars. And those wars also interfere with our liberty by destroying our economy, by devouring the middle class. The mi a democracy cannot function without a robust middle class. And we now have made a war, we're making war on, abroad, but we're making war on the middle class here at home. And the two things are connected. Yes. If you look at the, the war, it's not an accident. At, after 9-11, we immediately, within a week, passed the Patriot Act, yes. which was the beginning of the national security state in this country. And we used that as a pretext to go to war with Iraq, which had, had nothing to do with 9-11. Yes. We went over there, and what happened? It, the neocons in in the White House, who were dominating the White House, that we want a project for a new American century. We won the Cold War, and now this, for the next hundred years, America will dominate the globe, using violence abroad to impose our will on other countries. And that was the philosophy of the neocons. That is it in a nutshell. And they went to war with Iraq, knowing that Iraq had done nothing. It was the first preemptive war in American history. And what did we get out of it? We got an $8 trillion bill, $8.1 trillion. And Iraq today is worse off than we found it. We killed more Iraqis than Saddam Hussein ever did. We left, we have left Iraq, this incoherent uh, nation state or, pro or proxy state of Iran that is in itself just a warring uh, uh, cauldron between Sunni and Shia death squads. We created ISIS. We drove two million refugees into Europe and destabilized every democracy in Europe for the next two generations and caused Brexit. And that is the outcome of that $8 trillion. And what happened at home? We robbed the middle class. In 1970, 62% of income in this country went to the middle class. And 29% went to the super rich, the 1% one, the one of 1%. Today, 42% of income goes to the middle class, so it went from 62 to 42. And the super rich get 50%. And that statistic tells you the whole story about what's happened in this country. It tells you why people, particularly in the middle part of this country, are living in total desperation and people who even people who have nice suburban homes and live really well, they're everybody.
is the, on the edge of a debt cliff. Everybody is on the edge of desperation. 35% of the people in this country are now can no longer afford. They do not make enough money to pay for basic human needs. That means transportation, housing, and food. 35% of our country. We are on the, those people are on the precipice of homelessness. 35% of our country. This is what Latin America looked like when I was a kid. And we had the, the, uh, the middle class in our country were in an era called the Great Prosperity. We had the wealthiest middle class. We were producing half the wealth on the face of the globe. And it was going into the pockets of the middle class in this country. And everybody wanted to be American. Everybody wanted our products, our blue jeans, our, our cars, everything, our stereos. And, and we have taken that we have taken that incredible utopia that we have, and mainly through funding wars, through funding bailouts, and through funding lockdowns, by printing money, we have robbed the middle class. And we have created this intense inflation. Now, I, I want to talk for a minute about the Ukraine war. And um, the Ukraine, we, we went to the Ukraine war, as I said, I, as I've said before, for all the right reasons, because America is a good, are good people. Abraham Lincoln said, America is a great nation because we are a good nation. And whenever we leave, if we ever lose our goodness, we will quickly lose our greatness as well. And we went there for compassion for the Ukrainian people for, uh, who were facing with valor, with courage, this illegal invasion by Vladimir Putin. And my son went over there to fight my son went over without telling us, joined the Foreign Legion, and fought as a machine gunner in a special forces unit in the Kharkiv offensive. And he went over there for those reasons, but for his compassion and his admiration for the courage and valor of the Ukrainians. But we were told the reason we were going over there was because it was a humanitarian mission. But then every choice that we've made along the way has been about prolonging the war and increasing the bloodshed and refusing to negotiate. If it was a humanitarian mission, we would want to, we would want to terminate the war. We would want to shorten it and reduce the amount of bloodshed. But President Biden has said that the real reason that we're in Iraq, that we're in Ukraine, is to is regime change for Vladimir Putin. And his Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, said the reason that we're there is to exhaust the Russian army and degrade its capacity to fight anywhere else in the world. Well, as it turns out, deposing Vladimir Putin has been the, for 20 years, the principal vocal aspiration of the neocons who were thrown out after the Bush, after the debacle in, in Iraq. And we thought they were gone for good, but now they've all reemerged in the Biden White House. And that's what they're doing. And that is not a humanitarian mission. It is the opposite of a humanitarian mission. This, we have caught this, this wonderful little nation in a, in a proxy war between two great powers being ground into dust by the ambitions and geopolitical ambitions of, of the neocons in the White House. And 
And the White House is lying to us about the number of Ukrainians who have died. The Ukrainian government is lying about the number of Ukrainians who have died. That number, the best estimates, are over 350,000 Ukrainian kids have already lost their lives in a war that, that cannot be won. And, uh, and that, the, you know, for us, winning it is destabilizing Putin. But it's not good for the Ukrainian people, and it's not good for our country geopolitically. As, as El just pointed out, we have driven the Russians into an alliance with the Chinese, which is the worst geopolitical outcome that we could have in this country. Uh, what we're doing there, Americans need to understand it. Our government is lying to us about it. The media is going along with the lie and not questioning them. If you look at CNN, the people who, are, who they have invite on to CNN to talk about these issues are the generals who have retired from the Pentagon. And if you look carefully at their resume, they're now working for uh, General Dynamics or these other military contractors that are laundering the money. It's a laundering operation for the military industrial contractors. My uncle, when my uncle was president, he, he, he realized after two months in office that he wanted to quit after the Bay of Pigs because he thought he had fallen for what the CIA lies. Richard Bissell, Alan Dulles, uh, Charles Cabal, the three top people at the CIA who he subsequently fired, had lied to him about what was happening in Cuba. He did not want to go in. He felt he didn't like the government they had there, but there were no Russians there at that time. Oh, his question is, why is the United States trying to choose an internal government for Cuba? That's their business. Why are we doing this? And he was told that, they, he was told about a, lot, a pack of lies. And when those men were dying on the beach, he walked out of the meeting and he said, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. He told his father afterward that he felt like such a failure that he wanted to quit, he wanted to resign. And uh, he couldn't believe, he felt a personal responsibility for every one of those lives. And his father said, it's the best thing that could happen to you because now you know who you're dealing with. Yeah. And he realized at that moment that he was surrounded by military brass and by an intelligence apparatus that considered war not only inevitable but desirable. And that the function of the CIA had devolved into providing our nation, not protecting our country and our national security, but providing the military industrial complex with a steady pipeline of new wars. And when they came back to him and said, we need to invade Laos, he said no. When they said repeatedly, again and again and again, all of his advisors, we need to send 250,000 troops into Vietnam, combat troops, he refused. He said, he refused to send even a single combat troop. He sent 16,000 advisors, mainly Green Berets and, and Navy SEALs, a, a unit that he had just started. And he, um, and that was fewer men, fewer soldiers than he sent to get James Meredith one black man into the University of, into Old Miss. And then in October of 1963, a month before he died, he heard that a man had been killed, one of those Green Berets had been killed in Vietnam, and he said, give me the casualty list. 
And one of his aides brought him a casualty list, 75 Americans had died, and he said, that's it, I want them all home. That's too many. And he ordered them, he signed a national security order that afternoon, ordering all troops out of Vietnam, the first thousand by uh, December, so two months hence, and then the rest of them by 1965. And he said, we were done. A month later, he was killed. And a week after that, LBJ revoked that order and ultimately a year later sent 250,000 troops there. And then Nixon sent 560,000 and 56,000 would never come home, including my cousin, George Skakel, who died in the Tet Offensive. And my uncle understood that you know, the function of these agencies was to, to keep us in war. And we need a president of the United States who understands that and who is able to stand up to these uh, And we need to take, you know, when after the Cold War ended, after the wall came down in, in Germany, um, we were told that we were going to get a peace dividend and that we could we could reduce military expenditures to 200 billion a year. Uh, but then we had 9/11, and and now we're our military expenditures in this country now, if you include veterans which cannot be cut. And national security, it's 1.3 trillion a year. And we can't survive on that. We spent 8 trillion on the Iraq war. We need, we spent 16 trillion on the lockdowns. That's 24 trillion dollars. And uh, is it any wonder we don't have a, a middle class in this country? In March, I have a friend, a lifelong friend who's a commercial fisherman, and he's on, he's worked his whole life, he has a fishing business that he's had to give to his son-in-law. He can't work anymore because it's a hard industry and he has severe disabilities. He relies on food stamps of $285, $283 a month. And by the way, that those food stamps have have bought him a lot less food over the last two years because the inflation, officially, inflation has raised the price of food by 20%. But in reality, for for basic foods like dairy, like eggs and chicken, they're up 76%. So his dollar, his food stamp, is going a lot less. $283 barely feeds him. It's $9 a day, and you know living in this state, he lives here now. Trying to feed yourself on $9 a day is a challenge, but he was able to do it. On March 1st, he got a robocall from the government telling him his food stamps were just cut by 90%. His now, he, he now gets $25 a month, which is 90 cents a day. And, you know, and 30 million Americans got that same call. A week after that, 15 million Americans were cut from Medicare. That same month, the government printed $300 billion to bail out the Silicon Valley Bank. And, and we topped off, we topped off our assistance to Ukraine at $113 billion. 
CDC's entire nat annual budget is 12 billion. EPA's entire natural annual budget is 12 billion. We're sending 113 billion over there when 57% of Americans cannot put their hands on $1,000 if they have an emergency. We have a crisis here in this country. And the whole world has a crisis. If, if democracy, if we don't have a middle class in this country, democracy is gonna collapse. You read any social, uh, political science book, and they'll all say that configuration of having a, a, a stratified society with a very, very wealthy aggregations of wealth at the top and widespread poverty below, it is much too unstable to support democracy. It cannot happen. You have this polarization and you have a breakdown of institutions. It can't happen. We need a democracy in this country. We need a middle class if we're gonna have a democracy. And if, if our democracy collapses, we are the exemplary democracy. We're the democracy upon which the entire world models itself. And we have an obligation to the world to rebuild our middle class in this country and make ourselves live up to the promise of America and the world. We need to take those trillions of dollars home and that's what I'm gonna do as president. I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring back the peace dividend. And we're going to cut those military expenditures, and we're going to stop bailing out the banks, and we're going to cut the military expenditures, and we're going to bring them home to the American people. We're going to take the, the, the instead of building a billion dollar stealth bomber that cannot fly in the rain, we're going to build schools, and we're going to roads, and we're going to pay teachers a decent salary. To focus on building the promise of America that my father was so proud of, that my uncle was so proud of. Since 1638, we've been told that this is the place where we're going to build a city on a hill, a shining city on a hill that has become the model that will be the model for every nation around the world. And that is our job. Our job is not to make war abroad, our job is to bring it home. And it's the best thing that we can do for our national security. My uncle refused, would never send anybody to war. He never sent a combat troop into action in his presidency. And he said that he wanted to make sure that the, the viewpoint of foreigners abroad, of an American, was not a man in a gun and a helmet. It would be a Peace Corps volunteer. And, he launched USAID, which is now just a CIA front, because they took it away from him, which paid for the, you know, to, for the revolution in Iraq in 2014. He created USAID, an alliance for progress, to, go, to, to stop the US foreign policy at that time, which is to give money and weapons to dictators and to solidify these oligarchies in Latin America and elsewhere who were stable and, and would, you know, who were reliable friends of the United States. And he said there's going to be a revolution in those countries and the, either the communists who are going to take, are, are going to hijack it or we are going to win it through with the force of idealism. We need to be in those countries creating a middle class.
And he created Alliance for Progress, USAID, the Kennedy Milk Program, which gave nutrition to children, hundreds of millions of children around the world. And that was his foreign policy. And today there are more statues to my uncle on, in nations around the world, there are more boulevards named after him, more avenues at the capitals of every nation in Latin America and Africa and Europe, or universities and hospitals named after him than any other president of the United States. And, and that, that is, that's not just a vanity for my family, it was so important for the United States of America that people loved our country. It's so much safer for us, so much easier for us to do business abroad if people like our country rather than thinking that we're there to bully them. They want our leadership, they want our moral authority, and they know the difference between leadership and bullying. And the Chinese have figured this out. The Chinese, instead of projecting military power abroad like we do, which is just broken things, are projecting economic power. And while we spend $8 trillion bombing bridges and roads and hospitals and, and, uh, and schools, during that same period, the Chinese spent $8 trillion building hospitals, schools, roads, and, uh, and universities with no strings attached. And what happened, they are now reaping a bonanza because all those countries want to deal with them. And our now entire national security formula which was the Shia Triangle. We have 800 bases abroad, and they're all based on keeping intact this triangle of Saudi Arabia, uh, Oman, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, Jordan, Lebanon, all the way up to Syria, and containing Iran. That is our principal foreign policy uh, strategy. Well, what happened? The Chinese just went in and made a peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yes, oh, the keystone of that entire strategy has now disappeared, and the Saudis, Mohammed bin Salman, two weeks later, this has happened in, in May, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, two weeks later, drops oil production at a time when America is in the middle of an inflationary spiral. The Saudis have never done that to our country before. Three days after that, he explained himself, unless it wasn't clear, he said, we don't care what the United States thinks anymore. We pumped trillions and trillions of our dollars there in military aid, and it's very clear, you know, we, we are like the alcoholic who is behind on his mortgage, and he takes the milk money and goes to the bar and is buying drinks for strangers, and thinking, thinking he's making a lot of great friends. And that's what, that's what our foreign policy has been. And all we've done is made enemies. And it's time for us to bring that money home, to focus, very, very laser focus, on rebuilding our industrial base, rebuilding the middle class in this country, and rebuilding a sense of dignity, real building communities that give our children the same opportunities for dignity and enrichment and, and good health and prosperity and pride in our country that I grew up with. I had such immense pride in the United States of America when I was a little boy. And I want my children to have that. And all of you want your children to have that. And they're taking it away from us. Bell said that we need an army. He said, 
We need a miracle for this to work. I said to my wife, I feel like we're getting a miracle every day. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that is coming to us. All the things that they said, okay, that, you know, that this campaign is going nowhere, that it's a joke, that it's fringe. They still treat me as a fringe candidate, and they say he doesn't have a chance, and they don't even put me in the polls a lot of times. Uh, and I'm, I'm uh, way ahead of DeSantis. I mean, my numbers are much better than his, but he's treated as a as a legitimate candidate. But, so I don't know. I feel like that's okay. They don't have to treat me. All we have to do is win the election. And I feel like that's gonna happen. Yes, <laughs> it's a sign. Joe said we need an army, and you are you're in the beginning of that army. Oh, you give me that army, and you give me a sword and some ground to stand on, and I will give your country back to you. Thank you all very much. Heart of Freedom 3, Bobby also included a third rule. And many of you have heard this repeated over and over and over, but no people in history has ever complied their way out of totalitarianism. I've spoken at county supervisors, spoken at city hall. We've all been waiting for that leader in politics who will tell us that we the people don't need their permission to live free. I'm standing here because Bobby has exemplified a boldness for truth, a commitment to take on bullies and corruption. He's taken more arrows. How many of you know he's taken more arrows than anyone in the last several decades, and he took them for you? But further, he took them for your kids and your kids' kids, Democrat or Republican for our future generations. I would go as far as to say everybody in the modern freedom movement has radically benefited from the service that this man has been devoted to. I want you to reach under your seat and I want you to grab that card with Bobby's beautiful face on it. Before you drive away today, if not right now, I want you to sign up for that newsletter. When they say they need an army, Team Kennedy needs an army. You are that army. Before you put your head on your pillow tonight and go to sleep, I want you to think about the value of this man, of this campaign, of this evening, of what you're experiencing. And I want you to know that, I don't, Del just told me a story, that he's editing videos for Team Kennedy. Like Del, Big Tree is editing. So they need, they need more money, they need more donations, they need more to push this continued message forward. Why? Because there's a lot of conservatives here, there's a lot of liberals here. The point is, this is our collective truth. 
And I hope you recognize that the higher vibrational principle that Bobby's speaking from is something that is more value than you can ever think of. Before you go to sleep tonight, find in your heart what it is that you believe is the value to donate, and please do that. Thank you to Team Kennedy for hosting this event. Thank you, Humphreys by the Bay. Thank you, Grooveline SD. Thank you, my team at Future Generations. If you're going to the meet and greet and dinner, it's up at the Marina Ballroom. And uh, thank you guys all for being here. Love and appreciate you.